Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. In this episode, I'm pleased to welcome a new guest to the show. I actually met this gentleman on social media. And I've been listening a lot lately to just what a poisonous environment social media is. So it's really wonderful to know that there's still an exception possible. He and I had a very brief interaction, and I thought it was interesting enough, so I just invited him to the show. And he said, sure, would love to be on the show. And uh, so I invite you to sit back and take a listen as I have a conversation with Nadim Gibran Salam. Here we are. I'm really glad that uh, that this is happening. Same. I'm going to silence my uh, unreliable technology. <laughs> Which is the nature of all technology right now, it seems. If it's made by man, it's never going to be perfect, you know? Absolutely. As much as, as, much as it's uh, deceiving, you know? Because technology is just like like a chimera it's just so powerful and like it's uh it's like uh, i see it as like uh the mythological waters you know of the past where you would look into the water and it would be filled with allusions to ancient man just going with something heady yeah let's jump right in i don't know if you'd like to do any formality staying high i usually don't actually so that's perfect we're hoping to get starlink speaking of uh technology i just put a deposit down on starlink uh, I'm not too familiar with that is. Oh, that's uh, one of Elon Musk's many ventures. He's uh, basically um, surrounding the globe with satellites to provide internet to uh, the entire world. And uh, apparently it's very high speed. And although I have a lot of misgivings about the idea of having thousands of satellites stringing the globe in order to do internet, I'm not going to be able to stop that no matter what I do. And there's already thousands of satellites up there. So I hear it's great. And we have really crappy internet out here. So I'm somewhat excited about it because I do a fair amount of stuff online. And it would be great to not have these technical problems. Although I'm sure that there will be other problems that will sneak in. You still with me? Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, you froze up just now. Yeah, we could turn off the video because... uh, it's going to be of limited entertainment value to just see a freeze frame. <laughs> Am I still freezing? Yeah, it's just been the same freeze frame now oh, wow. since I first mentioned it. So okay, yeah, I'll, I'll click stop video. Yep. I'm going to do the same here. Okay. So yeah, you started talking about the basic properties of technology, that there's a kind of a fundamental unreliability or at least a uh, imperfection that will always creep into our technical aspirations. And I think that's an incredibly important thing to consider because not only are we placing so much hope in the technology, but we've gotten to a point now where we really depend upon it. So in many respects, I think a lot of people see, you know, they believe that the only way out of the various challenges that are posed is to go full steam into all the possible technical solutions yeah I, I think there's a misconception that the technology that we have now I, w- I would call it the post-computer 
era of technology is no different than, you know, a plow is to a farmer going back maybe however long. But there's, to me, it's a, there's a massive difference, which is the plow is just an object. It's just a tool that uh, does what it's designed for. There's like a, you could call it a dumb technology. And um, I, I think post com- the computer era, it's almost like this is the first technology that has ever looked back at us. So in some ways you could see it as like a, the birth of a new creature. You know, I think um, the psychologist Carl Jung t- uh, described when locomotives were being invented that it's like man was creating his own animated creatures. You know, they're almost like beasts, uh, metal beasts that uh, come out of our imagination. And there's this, uh, you know, there's obviously this natural element to technology that's uh, very lifelike, but up, uh, I would say the computer and beyond, you know, with artificial intelligence is the perfection or as close to perfection of that uh, uh, original creation of something looking back at us. Well, I, I think that some of the people who were de- uh, involved in the earliest development of computer technology saw from that very, very early point that the fundamental utility of the computer would be to control the human being. So I think it was um, yeah. uh, T- Alan Turing who was responsible for some of the basic conceptual framework within which the computer was developed. And he recognized as he was working on, I think the machine to break the Enigma code during World War II, that this was a device that would be used for the control of human populations, which, you know, during the world wars, I think everyone became aware that if we didn't get human behavior under control, we were in serious trouble. So, you know, as the technology, military technology developed, it became ever more destructive and uh, threatening to a decent way of, of life. The recognition was that, well, we had better change the way that human beings tend to behave. Otherwise we're doomed. Yeah, for sure. There's, um, there's actually a really great new movie that came out. Um, I think last year, um, which seems like not really a real year. So from now on, I just refer to 2020 as the lost year Hmm. in a lot of sense for, you know, just the collective. (laughs) It also depends on what you did with that time. Right. Which we can get into, uh, uh, in, a, in a short moment. Yeah, another way of looking at it is that, you know, t- 2020 was when things got real. Yeah, in some respects, you could say that, that in, in actuality, we've been living in uh, a delusional dream and 2020 was the wake-up call. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but it, it, w- w- this discussion of technology is definitely reminding me of this new movie. Uh, it's called All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. I don't know if you've heard of it. Ah, that, of course, it's one of my favorite films of all time. It's actually not a new movie. It oh, okay. was made maybe 10 years ago. Really? Uh, although Adam Curtis did just, yeah, he did just release a new movie, which is called Can't Get You Out of My Head, which I highly recommend. It may not be quite as as concise 
Cerebral. and incisive. Uh-huh. Oh my God. All watched over by Machines of Love and Grace. We could talk about that for five hours and we'd only be scratching the surface. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I guess it was a, a, a mistake on um, iTunes or wherever I think I rented to see it. Um, it says 2020, but yeah, um, Adam Curtis is, you know, he's done a really good job with that film and um, I haven't watched, I didn't watch all of it, but I got through enough where it definitely uh seemed to resonate with me on a deep level because of things that i think of so you know i i'm not always um really as worried about technology uh in the sense of the fear of the 60s when uh you know in the 50s when people were really worried about um atomic bombs and that kind of thing to me it's i see it as more of a very slow lullaby especially with social media seems to have this really strange effect on society like uh it's a it's definitely destabilized society to some degree Mm -hmm. because i think the longer you use uh you go it's almost like going down a rabbit hole and um i know in great a lot of great mythology there's like a room of mirrors you know where you see many versions of you and, and after a while the longer you're there you're not you're really not sure what was the original image you know, there's this uh, potential, I think, especially um, if that's all you've known is this type of uh, doorway into the fractured uh, images of yourself that uh, you could get lost. And, you know, imagine being in a fun house for enough time and you drop acid. You might forget which one was the first one, <laughs> you know, the first reflection. Yeah. Yeah. It stops being fun after a while. Yeah. It seems disorienting, um, I think for certain age groups. And I don't know if you follow the work of Jonathan Haidt and uh, people have really kind of given that a good examination, but uh, they speak in depth about, you know, social media having this uh, negative, seems like negative effect on younger people. Uh, There's a a huge increase in self-harm, depression, suicide uh, at levels we've never seen for people that young, you know? when you're supposed to be filled with the most hope, you know, in your life. Yep. Are these topics, uh, yeah, these topics that interest you, uh, that you've thought about a lot in your personal life. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're, you're touching on some very deep themes here. And I think at a time when people are kind of obsessed with identity, it kind of stands to reason that we would have a very difficult time figuring out what identity is. Yeah. I think on some level you could say that that's a, an overall pattern. Like uh, prior to the identity, you had this individualism, which in many respects is a is a similar type of phenomena. I think that Curtis talks about that the age of, uh, the age of the individual, uh, the century of the self is another one of his documentaries that kind of examines how Freudian thinking was integrated into government and business uh, in an effort to control mass behavior. A super interesting one. I mean, basically all of Adam Curtis's films are well worth watching and meditating on. I think it's also worth mentioning that as wonderful and as deep as his work is, there is uh, a way in which I have to keep in mind that he's worked for the BBC and that you don't work for the BBC without kind of playing by a certain set of rules. So there are some things in some of the films where I feel like, Maybe he's kind of shading things in a certain way, but 
you know, if you kind of keep that in the back of your mind, it's remarkable how much it is that he offers in terms of a glimpse into the big patterns that are happening within history and the big changes and doing so in a way where it's kind of you feel the force of history moving things and not so much like trying to blame individuals. You know, there are, he tells individual stories of people who have strengths and weaknesses and what have you, but the narrative is one of kind of trying to understand and fit together all these pieces so you can see that the arc of history has this movement to it and we're all kind of wrapped up in it. That's what I really admire about, about his commentary and just the opportunity to be able to see all that archival footage is incredible. Yeah, for sure. He's, uh, I mean, when you make a film like that, you know, I think, think of all the work that we don't see, you know, we see a final product, but the amount of work that it takes to research something like that and, you know, get, try to be true to the form. Um, any good filmmaker should be um, truthful. I think that's what lasts, you know, in art. Do making a documentary is, is part journalism, part art, and uh, historian. So there's many components that go into something like that. So I definitely have respect for people who do that. Absolutely. It's interesting, like you, you mentioned, that it should be truthful. And I, I think it's a, a tragedy, like the tragedy of our time is that people have forgotten that truth was the highest aspiration of art. And it's so rare now to see art with any concern for the truth uh, built into it. Yeah, that's a complex one, you know, especially now. It's a really complex one, uh, what you just said, because there's so many components that go into uh, culture, you know, the current culture, too, that, um, and, you know, it's like, where do you begin with trying to unpack it? But certain, like, viewpoints that I've had about it are, it's really hard to have a culture of honesty. And uh, when you have an ought to think as culture. And um, you, you have a lot of moral type of posturing going on uh, because it's like in, in some, uh, you know, and that's also a multivaried complex perspective too, because I don't want to generalize with what types of people are capable of doing that because human nature is so easily swayed and, uh, you know, by intentions that seem to be the good intention, but, you know, there's a great uh, quote, I'm sure you've heard, that the line between good and evil strikes uh, between the heart of every man. Mm -hmm. I think it was uh, Shulshitsen who, who mm -hmm. said that originally, who survived uh, the gulags mm -hmm. in Russia. Um, and I, I think that uh, a lot of identity and things like that, uh, you know, they're kind of related. It's... Um, the focus on uh, identity is, uh, I think, one part because you have the first generation to ever grow up on intelligent software that it, it almost participates with your consciousness. You know, uh, I, I grew up in, I, I was born in 1984 for obviously people listening who don't know, uh, don't know me, don't know much about me. Uh, so I'm kind of in the I would say it was closer to the uh, Gen X generation. I had an older brother and sister and they had a huge influence on me because they were old enough to be in the culture of their time. 
So I, uh, even though I, you know, I really came to age in the late eighties and early nineties, I was still really connected to, uh, a previous mm. life before, uh, intelligent technology. And, um, let's just say to give perspective, uh, Facebook and MySpace were invented after I graduated high school. So I, I got to live an entire lifetime of learning who I am. And uh, I will, I would just want to say something about learning who you are, because that's, that's also very important. Um, a large part of that is being wrong, you know, uh, learning like identity isn't, you know, and this is something that uh, Jordan Peterson has expressed recently um, that, you know, a big part of identity is uh, being wrong because identity isn't fully your own, right? You, you can't just invent an identity. Like I am the world's greatest shaman philosopher. Great. Wow. Okay. Pat on, you can't pat yourself on the back <laughs> the, you know, that hard. Uh, it takes people to participate in shaping your identity, maybe course correcting you, maybe, you know, exposing you to your own, um, humbleness you know in some ways because you know to think that we fully know ourselves it's it's a very uh confident maybe overconfident position mm -hmm. to have yeah i think it's in on some elemental level philosophically impossible to know one's true identity uh i imagine that in the past it was at times easier to have a more solid sense of identity and part of what you're saying yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it was. I don't know if it was ever easier in the past or something. You know, um, I think it's always been difficult. You know, I think it's been very, very hard. And for that reason, maybe people um, uh, pass on a sense of uh, duty to people to understand that it is difficult and it takes a lot of work and patience. And you're you're always learning about you know, parts of yourself. And it, it, the most important part of that is through relationship, through communication, through uh, like a type of mirroring, you know, you have to have someone mirror right. to you uh, who, uh, your behavior and tendencies so you can then actually learn about them. You know, it's very easy to get defensive. about. That. I would push back on that a little bit because it seems to me that in the past, there were periods of time where there was a degree of stability and there would be a kind of a passing of a way of life from generation to generation with a fair amount of continuity. So if you were born into a family of blacksmiths, then you were going to be a blacksmith, probably, you know, and, and that, you know, farmers would be farmers. And so it was a way of life. And so you're integrated into a kind of pattern of cultural uh, behavior and it just felt incredibly natural. It's not until someone calls it into question or some kind of disruption occurs that one begins to wonder who the heck you are. You know, so it's kind mm. of like taken out of the context of whatever would be a rooted life in a very particular way of doing things. That's when the question of identity arises. Otherwise, I think there are, there are some people who never even doubted for a moment or ever had any kind of... Um, even a sense that another identity would be possible. They may know that there are other people doing other things, but, you know, this is what we do. 
So, you know, we've lost that uh, and for a variety of different reasons and perhaps to some extent on purpose. You, know, you can make the, the case that part of the whole plan in trying to control large numbers of people was to dislocate them from context and to place them into, you know, uh, the context of no context, which is a, another book that's kind of an interesting touchstone to get a sense of what, what has happened to the world, where it's very difficult to have a sense of belonging for any significant period of time. People move from one location to another, one job to another, one profession to another. They have different types of friends, and it's difficult to form a very deep understanding for each other. Well, yeah, I don't know if we're disagreeing um, exactly. I'm, I'm, I guess I was trying to say that the uh, self-illusion has always been there. We've always had to work within that as much as, you know, um, we've had to, you know, before our brains grew large enough that, you know, we were just dealing with hunger, right? Like these kinds of the base biological drives. Um our brains grew massively and a large part of our focus has been our minds. And um, I just think self-illusion has always been there, but yes, what you're saying is like a cultural uh, construct, like the construct of reality. I, I see every time period as having its own uh, psychological construct and you're almost working within those dynamics and uh, the time period you speak about kind of tradesmen. Yeah. I, I, I see that as when culture is mirroring biology it's mirroring human nature and it's it's benefiting it to some degree more than let's say mar the modern era you know in some ways which like you said kind of works against your your nature works against i guess just uh allowing your consciousness to have some sort of flexibility to understand itself mm -hmm. which was i think definitely i mean it's always been hard though you know even in the past but i would say we're not making it any easier. <laughs> yeah. It's like taking something infinitely complex and making it more complex, which is just, it's abstraction. And uh, d the digital world is abstraction. You know, it is the, it's kind of like the infinite world of just endless numbers. And it's interesting. I, 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 I have yet to fully understand it. Obviously it's, um, whether it's it would be too um, finite for me to say that it's the it's it's worse or it's just a transition into something unknown, mm -hmm. you know, that likely mean you will never see. So, well, I, I think that if I hear what you're saying uh, correctly, then uh, we do basically agree. And you could say that the, the fundamental issue of identity is always philosophically at question. And that's kind of just the nature of, of existence. And that that's maybe brought to highlight in moments of crisis. And that the present technology is leveraging that basic fact against us on some level. That it, it takes this... this um, this question that no one can really fully resolve and brings it to the forefront in everyone's mind as we're all attempting to figure out who we are and what the hell it is we're doing here. Yeah, I think, you know, when you demand that people are perfect and, you know, which is, you could argue that people are saying that it's important to also 
I guess, be a, a little bit objective about that. Are people demanding people are perfect or just not do bad things and say bad things? I guess that's the counter argument is, well, we're just asking people to be better and we're not asking people to be perfect. But I would say the objective uh, aha moment is the uh, lack of redemption, because if, if you're really trying to make people better, then you have to allow them to be redeemed. That's just how the process works. Right. You know, uh, and uh, I don't I don't know about your religious background or things like that, but I grew up Islamic and I left Islam as a child and uh, went into Buddhism. It was really, really came to me at the right time. And I, I was just obsessed with reading about Buddhism and a lot of, uh, you know, East Asian philosophies. And that definitely informs my ideas of redemption. So I, I do think it's incredibly ancient. You know, it's something to be so cavalier about it would be wrong. I think redemption is integral to the human spirit and it's something profound and it looks and feels a way that vibrates with us in a way that we know it when it happens and that it's important. It's, it's primal to the human experience. And um, yeah, I definitely see a lack of redemption. It's very obvious to see how people who've said or done things that when they're younger are sort of canceled, right? That is the language of the time. They're canceled. It's, it's, type, it's almost like a type of uh, gulag system in a way. You're just, you're banished. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so there, in that way, there is no redemption is my general point. Well, it seems that, you know, holding people to impossible standards is something that has been accumulating over the course of time. When you think about the standards of so-called beauty, I will use the air quotes around the word beauty. You said you said it's increasing. Yeah, I think so. the, The impossible standards and that that's kind of a trick. It's it's a way of creating a kind of fear, I think, is probably the primary response, particularly when people's livelihoods are being cut out from underneath them as a result of saying the wrong word. I think that's, you know, we're definitely into Orwellian territory here. And it's, it's profound that this would happen here in this country that has uh, for so long uh, celebrated its, its dedication to freedom and even more recently to so-called tolerance and fairness, you know, and, and it's kind of thumped its chest to the rest of the world talking about how wonderful we are here. And somehow or another, this is what's ended up happening. There, there seems to be kind of a, the consequence of hubris visits all of us, mm. whether we were improving of it at, as it progressed or not. You know, the, the sins of the father are visited upon all the sons. Yeah, which is such a tragedy, right? To be punished for the sins of, uh, you know, the people that we stand above, ground, you know, mm-hmm. that's, um, it hurts, you know, it, it makes me definitely sensitive uh, to hear and see when people do that, because I know I'm a, I'm a self-reflective person, and uh, I know that I am not perfect, you know, I know that I in my younger times have made serious mistakes and mistakes that um, I would never change if I had the chance to, Hmm. because I, I did the work to realize how 
being uh, being in certain places at the right time with the wrong crowd even <laughs> you know it eventually leads you to some sort of road in in the the hero's journey of um correcting that mistake like every to me every action has a seed yeah it's it's that's what life is you know how can you how can you know life without having made mistakes i've made a lot of mistakes and you know part of me really wishes that i could change some of the things <laughs> but uh but i i hear what you're saying the the terrible things that that end up happening and the bad decisions that we make are definitely a huge part of the learning process although it has to be said that it seems like there are some people who don't learn and so you know it's an opportunity to learn but it's not necessarily going to happen and a lot of the decisions that have led to the situation that we're presently confronted with are made by a very small number of people which is the other thing that's just outrageously kind of disgusting and unfair about the situation. Uh, so many of the decisions that have led things to the point that we're at in this country, it was really just a, a small number of people who made these decisions. And this is supposedly a democracy. So, you know. Yeah, there's a, I hear, I hear a lot of language when um, people say this is a democracy. You know, I think people like, um, I don't know, it depends on your ideology, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and definition, I guess. I, I see myself as ideological, you know, so I, I, I tend to be a watcher and observer. And, um, you know, I obviously growing up, I grew up in New York, so the chances of being a conservative in New York are like, I don't know, finding a living dinosaur, you know? <laughs> That's funny. People would stop and stare and scream and run. Um, but I, yeah, I, I grew up very liberal, though, and obviously a Democratic voter. But um, it's really interesting. I think there's certain time periods and things that happen where, you know, the collective you know, moves in a direction that uh, it's outside your control, you know, like you, mm -hmm. you mentioned with Elon Musk and technology earlier, um, some things are out of your control and you're, you're, you're just a participator and making free, you know, choices to some degree within an algorithm of reality, you know? Yeah. Like free choices within a constrained set of circumstances. Yeah. Well, you're always given an, uh, a certain amount of choices and that can abstract you and, a whole new direction and which seems like infinity, you know, like it, you'll never get to live out every life and this, every choice of, so it's not something, you know, small. It's obviously to me, it's like infinity, but yeah, you're, you know, you have a certain amount of choices, but uh, you know, I was saying about politics that um, it's kind of similar. Like uh, it seems like there's this with obviously Donald Trump and that era it seems to be the end of one era and the beginning and welcoming of a whole new direction of society. And uh, as much as, you know, we're kind of fighting for to keep norms that make sense. And there's this kind of uh, turmoil uh, and, you know, similar turmoils come and go every few, however many years and uh, decades, hundred years, right? It's hundred year events that change the course of history boiled down to that one year. And I think we just went through that mm. <laughs> between, uh, you know, chaotic politics in America and COVID. Yeah. Um, we've definitely, 
entered a transition that we are participating with rather than uh, getting to opt out if we wanted to. Everyone's in right now. So at this point, do you do you identify as uh, on the political spectrum one way or another? Or are you sort of uh, in in a no man's land? I think I, I mean, I'm in I'm, there's a new uh, saying that's going around called politically homeless. Yeah. Um, yeah. Shout out to whoever invented that, because I think there's many people who feel, feel that way, whether they were leftists aligned with Bernie and or kind of more politically tokenized and uh, into the party line. I know a lot of people have let the, left the Democratic Party, which I, I'm actually un- officially unregistered as of uh, last week. So I am literally politically homeless now. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've been politically homeless most of my life. I'm, I'm a, a fair amount older than you. I was born in the 60s. And uh, it, it, well, you don't look it. <laughs> well, I feel it. <laughs> but thank you, sir. Um, For people, yeah, maybe may not be any video component, so the audience can't uh, stroke your ego here either. Yeah. So I'm sorry about well, that. Well, they, they rarely do that anyway, and, and hopefully they'll continue to not do that because <laughs> that would be a terrible thing. My ego actually um, saw some kind of positive reinforcement. I, I think I'd probably abandon the whole project. But, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's occurred to me pretty early on that that neither flavors, you know, this sort of duopoly system was was a fraud. And uh, and it's been incredibly difficult to uh, talk about, you know, maintaining connections with people and so, that sort of thing. If there's any political discussion, I, a lot of my friendships have been really sorely tested by my refusal to toe the party line. And most of them, of course, because I came from New York, were Democrats. I have now, having left the East Coast and experienced a a, a wide range of things that were way outside of what typically happens on the East Coast, I have some friends who are far more conservative-leaning, some of whom uh, were Trump supporters and who... I actually find in general that the conservative crowd is more willing to engage on things than than the liberal crowd. Yeah. And uh, I find that really interesting, although I I still disagree with many of their positions. uh, I do admire the fact that at least they're willing to have a conversation about it. But I think that now it's gotten so polarized and so tendentious and just you know, and and it seems like the conversations never really lead anywhere. People have really kind of hunkered down into their into their uh, foxholes and and don't want to budge. And I wonder to what extent now, you know, those of us who are politically homeless make up perhaps a majority. You know, I think that's in some respects what Brett Weinstein has been suggesting in his, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his movement of the effort to bring together the, the two parties with kind of a third party. It's an interesting little trick he was trying to do called Unity 2020. And I, I thought it was a brilliant idea. And, you know, it, it could have worked, but you could tell even the people who he had, they had picked to, uh, to be part of this movement were somewhat reluctant, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> uh, it's just so difficult to operate outside of the system because the system is incredibly powerful, even though it's 
on the wane. And even though it's incredibly corrupt and really doesn't do the people any good anymore, as far as I can tell, there's still a lot of power in it. And they're unafraid to use methods that anyone with a sense of decency would never, never do. So it's difficult to compete against people uh, who have those, you know, a willingness to to do whatever it takes. Well, I mean, I think it's no coincidence. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard and uh, I believe it's uh, Amish who uh, left their positions, uh, you know, or are going to. I don't know the timeline, but I think it's really hard for good people to get into politics, you know, that, and it's almost made that way. It would take enough people to really get in together to uh, do something about it. it's it's really hard because it, it goes back to a lot of our more psychological combos about learning about yourself and um, extending to people grace that may not even deserve it. You know, a lot of this takes a uh, takes a, takes a lot of strong like a like a strong sense of uh, belief and self. And uh, maybe even something beyond mm-hmm. offer people that kind of uh, courtesy. Well, this actually gets back to the uh, this actually gets back to the way that you and I met, which was uh, you had tweeted something. What you said was, if society is determined to make sure only conformists are celebrated, not harassed and bullied, create a culture where the opposite is true. Celebrate and support those who dare to think. And um I thought that was really interesting and, and uh, replied to it that I said, amen, but some deep problematics there. And then asked if you wanted to be a guest on the podcast. Right. Sure. Which I'm happy you did. You know, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, um, and, you know, there's something else that came out of that. Uh, I think there's a good chance that um, that Mike McCullough may be a guest sometime in the near future, too, because uh, I noticed that he not only liked the interaction that you and I had, but, um, but dis- decided to uh, subscribe to me on Twitter. So I was like, well, you know, Mike, if, uh, cause I've been following him for many years and I've had a number of exchanges with him. He's always really gracious and, and wonderful. And I imagine you follow him too. And, yeah. uh, and so I said, Hey, you know, if you ever wanted to come on the show too, I would be honored to have you as a guest. And he said, well, uh, let's talk about it in a couple of weeks. That's so awesome. that was wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so I want to thank you for that because that wouldn't have happened had it not been for our exchange. And, uh, hmm. but I think that what you were, you were pointing to there is absolutely related to the whole political situation that we find ourselves in right now, because fundamentally we have these two parties that are demanding that everyone kind of, uh, step in line in particular right now, I think the Democrats are really over the top with that. I mean, in some respects, it looks like they're making moves to try to make it illegal to be someone who's against them. And so this whole thing of conform, you know, conformity, when you have a society that's fragile, it seems like quite often that's what ends up happening is that there's ever greater demand that no one rock the boat at the time when really we need to really be reevaluating what it is that we're doing here and coming up with some new ideas because to drill down on doing things the way that have led us to the present situation is pure insanity. I mean, I think that's kind of, 
Einstein's definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. And that's basically what politicians have been doing. They're, they're continually pushing the same policies and the, the disastrous results are, I think it's frankly gotten to the point now where it's almost impossible to imagine how this could get turned around in a decent way. Yeah. I'd like to, um, I'd like to go back real quick to, um, you know, just talking about this type of, uh, cause I think it's related to politics, right? Because politics is always, to me, politics are, it's just, a a game of opportunism, you know, and they follow where they, they think the crowd is going. And then they also use the cultural uh, tide against people, you know, and that's, that's really the definition of propaganda. And if you think about it, you know, it's culture manipulated culture, but um, I'd like to just go back real quick and touch on what you said, which was really, you know, kind of the, I think a part of the heart of this is you were saying that Republicans and, you know, or you could just say conservative, conservative leaning uh, tend to at least be down to have like a, a discussion uh, in, in 2021. That's what it seems like, which is kind of remarkable because the left has always been this pioneer and champion of open, free intellectual debate. And um, I think that's important examining, you know, I think uh, it has something to do with the fact that these ideas were once countercultural to the time and the era of when they were largely growing and building in America. And, you know, th there's this underdog quality to uh, these ideas. And it was through the successes of making these ideas mainstream uh, that they also went through the same process of anything that becomes mainstream in society which is a high point and decay. All, all ideas decay eventually, mm -hmm. right? Establishments are formed. And then those establishments get greasy and nasty. And like, it's kind of like with unions, there was a time and era when they really shined when they needed to. And then the times change and they become the establishment. They're still comprised of groups of individuals and individuals are playing by the same types of rules as groups do just on a larger level. And um, one of those rules is self-delusion and uh, wanting power and, you know, all the types of deadly sins that are spoken about in human nature. Yep. You know, and then it becomes about how can we benefit our group and tribalism takes over. And um, I think that ties in a lot to politics because politics is mirroring a lot of the culture and it's also manipulating the culture at the same time. So, you know, I think a, a solution is to really form a, first of all, form avenues like this, right? This type of dialogue we're having for different consciousness to communicate. I always say that um, respect for different consciousness, right? Like you having your own worldview that's unique and me having my own that's unique and both of us interacting uh that there like that is the highest sign of liberty you know respect for different consciousness and um as long as we cultivate that and we really educate uh you know people about propaganda it to me that's a great solution because eventually politics will be forced 
in some ways to participate with the culture we're building. There has been times that we've gotten very close to that. And I think um, there's a reason why, uh, you know, I, I'm not an expert in it, but I, I just have to mention like, like with uh, infiltration and a lot of that happened in the 60s uh, because people were getting very successful at creating different consciousness. But I think the ultimate route towards any of this is cultivating different consciousness and, um, you know, just understand that there's a reason why uh, I think Noam Chomsky said this, you know, so I'm really dropping uh, left and right references. So you really know that I, I mean what I say about uh, being politically <laughs> homeless. But I, I think Noam Chomsky uh, mentioned that the, the debate, right, the rubric of debate is limited and it's uh, it's narrowed so that you're only speaking in terms of A or B. Right. And that's 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 not a coincidence, I think. Well, yeah, the conformist point of view would really limit what's on the menu. So it's just, you know, multiple choice of, you know, a handful of things that can be discussed without uh, getting ejected from the stage. But I think that what you point to is actually what I was going to bring up. This question of infiltration is extremely important. And while I completely agree that uh, I think you said it really nicely that liberty is the recognition of the diversity of consciousness and the willingness to be able to hear uh, those those who you disagree with and just different points of view in general, which is, I think, you know, the step one when it comes to being able to learn. But I think the infiltration has gotten now to the point where, in essence, the infiltration is the platform that we're all using in order to be able to make these connections. <laughs> Great point. So on some level, in the context of understanding that, that the flow of history from sort of this Adam Curtis, we could say, a, uh, sense of the pressure of this new destructive technology, uh, not just nuclear weapons, but biological weapons and the various types of techniques that have been developed in order to control human behavior for industrial purposes, for espionage purposes, for political purposes. All of that kind of lands us in a, in a reality where fundamentally humanity is being uh, managed and controlled in much the same way that humanity manages and controls crops and and farm animals, you know? And so while we're all being monitored, there's to some extent a, uh, you know, there are some who are looking for signs of innovation and novelty, something that might be useful. And there are others who are looking for things that might be dangerous that they would want to suppress or eliminate. Uh, so on some level, we're, you know, we're back in the jungle, you know, it's a dangerous game and we're, those of us who are interested in participating, it are going to be, well, taking on a certain amount of risk. It took me quite a while to get to the point where I would be willing to speak freely about, about things. I had to do a lot of thinking because I, I recognized that, you know, this is a relatively serious thing to do. Although, you know, I don't, I don't have enough of an audience for it to really matter at this point. That could change, I suppose, although it seems unlikely because, you know, part of the game right now is that the platforms uh, make a decision about whether or not the algorithm is going to favor whatever it is you're doing. And so if there's something that you're doing that they would wa not want to see spread, they may still find it of interest, 
but they they will probably keep it relatively circumscribed so that there's really not all that much attention given to it and it's very easy for them to do that if they if someone gets a lot of attention it's very easy for them to shut them down now and we've seen that happening uh with alarming frequency nowadays so you know i i try to find a way of being able to to see things in a light that's as forgiving as possible to the people who i disagree with and you know the people who are running these these technology companies and making the decisions that they're making are amongst them you know they're kind of like the political class but i think on some level you know given the flow of history we can see that that a species that has so many uh, members uh, and with such a, a violent history and with uh, you know relatively slim tolerances in maintaining civilization, there would be increasingly kind of a lack of, of tolerance and an insistence on people doing things in a particular way, whether it's for the better or not. You know, and, and there's another frame that I think is worth talking about that's a little bit out there but you know i think that there is an evolutionary uh way of viewing what's going on and if you look at what happened to the social insects like the the, the ants and the bees they had to change their behavior in order to manage large populations and part of that behavior was you had um large numbers of uh non-reproductive females uh, you have this kind of endorphin-based economy. You have um, males uh, suppressed and basically just kind of held as a sperm bank, you know. And so we see some of these similar types of trends because uh, humanity has reached a kind of crisis point in its relationship between, you know, its requirements in order to maintain a population and the environment. And so, you know, the, the male tendency to want to try to solve problems and, you know, think things through and get to the bottom of it and all that kind of stuff is disruptive to fragile systems that are really struggling to maintain themselves. And I think that's why we're seeing some of the of the um, of this kind of uh, oppressive behavior coming from uh, leadership. Well, yeah, I think. um the the social media owners right like the giants and the the owners who run those companies i think they're making a huge mistake trying to be the arbiters of like morality and that's the really tricky thing i just think that they um i want to say that I, i'm not sure if it's as innocent as them just being business people right because it's business and politics the one thing they have in common is what does the audience want? I really, it's like, you're just trying to get to make sure that, uh, you know, the money keeps coming in. So you, you just follow what the audience wants. And, you know, I, I think it's, I'm not sure if that is the case here because I know that a large part of uh, these early, ventures were created with this type of utopian vision right and it's in that utopia type of thinking i think where you do get some mm. of the most horrific types of behavior it's this type of like arrogance that you know with a couple of fixes you can improve people and you can make everything squeaky clean it reminds me of that uh the book 
Yeah, uh, are you are you thinking of the book that I'm thinking of? Um, <laughs> I was I was with the name. Uh, I don't know. Oh, that sounds like uh, all watched over by machines of love and grace. There's there's a fair amount of that, you know, the the sort of dismal place that that utopian idealism led to, is detailed in that documentary. But what's the book you were thinking of? Uh, the Giver. Mm, I don't know it. It's uh, it takes place in the near future where um, it's kind of really eerie, but it's like imagine if you thought through this time period, right? That we don't know the direction it'll go in, but one of the directions it could go in is like this sci fi novel called The Giver, where let's say we keep going into abstraction and um, it comes a point where you know how there's this huge safety culture and this like inability to deal with different consciousness, to feel the friction of having to defend your identity, right? There's this almost wanting to avoid that and have the online world mirror the real world. And we, we clearly see that it doesn't work, you know, because um, I mean, even on a psychological level, sure. Right. You could say that you do need the challenge uh, to, be a full person like the challenge is a part of the you know becoming whole and then that's like a union term that carl jung would use is wholeness and uh, he's you know carl jung said he doesn't aim he doesn't he's not aiming to be a good person he's aiming to be a whole person so that's that's kind of what i mean by that well there's a lot of interesting themes in there and and uh i thought maybe it would be interesting to discuss how some of this plays. We have actually a number of, of common interests that I, I find um, sort of fascinating. Like you're a musician and, uh, and if I'm not mistaken, you are a, an electrician. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, that was just uh, mainly because of uh, COVID, you know, so I'm in the audio world. I've always been in the audio world. I've been, obsessed with sound since i was like in the third grade and uh i had a tape, a tape recorder and i i started recording all sorts of weird abstract stuff so um you know audio uh i i'm a mix engineer i also have been uh just filming uh artists for many many years i'm a musician myself and during uh, covid i needed to expand my skills because I realized quickly the arts, the entertainment was the first to go and the last to come back, you know, and uh, that put me in a really difficult situation. I mean, luckily I had a bit of my online part of uh, the business already set up. So I was able to do springboard off of that, but uh, getting into audio electric, like it was an expansion of my skills that I've already had. So I'm, kind of building gear uh whether you know analog gear and designing it and um that company is uh called redeemer electric labs so that's that's a, you know a part of my part of my world that's wonderful uh send me the link i'll put it in the show notes yeah my father was a was a professional musician and then he was in the music business too so oh, he right on. uh opened a number of record shops um that uh, they had like one of the first chain of record shops in the United States mm. and uh, did pretty well with that. 
so I grew up with, uh, you know, music was like the family religion, truly. What I would have given growing up with a family like yours, you know, but uh, I think it worked out. You know, though, uh, there were there was there were some real downsides to it. Oh, really? Uh, I'm I'm not saying that I'm not grateful for it. It was great, but um, you know, part of it was that uh, I placed too much into the musical. I really feel like in order to be a whole person, to be well-rounded, you need to have a wider range of experiences. And I just kind of funneled myself into that for the first 30 some odd years of my life. And it really wasn't a good fit for me. I'm, I'm not a musician kind of guy, you know, I love music. I love making music. I think that some of the stuff that I do is worth listening to, but I don't like the music business. I don't like going to clubs. I don't like going on tour. Uh, I just don't like the social scene of it. It's not the kind of thing I'm more philosophically oriented. You know, I'm, 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 I have this weird idea that like truth and music should be married to each other. And that just doesn't seem to be part of the show usually. So, uh, I end up feeling like, you know, this is really not what I want to put my, my heart and soul into. So, but I did for a long time, you know, I, I did the whole, do commercial music during the day in order to fund your project that you're doing at night, you know, that whole thing. And I did a bunch of work in music technology. And then uh, eventually I got interested in, in Eastern philosophy as well. I started studying Taiji and Qigong. And uh, I realized that I, I was kind of hating the musical world. So I, I left the city. I lived in New York as well and started just teaching little Taiji classes. And then when I met my wife, I moved out from the East Coast, which I never thought I would do. I moved to Oregon and started doing odd jobs. So I started learning like all kinds of stuff, you know, from the stuff you do around a house to doing uh, landscaping and, and uh, forestry work. And I joined the fire department, you know, and just kind of like, realized there's a hell of a lot more to life than just music. And in some ways, I feel like if I hadn't done that, I would have lost my music. I know so many guys who are professional musicians who it's like the last thing they want to do is you know, music in a way, you know what I mean? Like they're kind of stuck in a, in a world that doesn't really allow them to be real musicians. I remember at one point when I was doing the commercial work, some guy who I knew was a keyboard player in one of the uh, pits in, uh, in Broadway. I think it was for Cats. And he was looking for a substitute keyboard player. And I sat in there a few times and just like got the feeling for what's going on there. And it was so freaking dismal. These really, you know, good musicians. But there was something about it that was the feeling of it was so dead you know? And, uh, I realized, you know what? Cause I treated it like a religion, I guess. So I, I wasn't willing to be sacrilegious. Yeah. It's, it's really, and, and I had to get out of it. Yeah. It's fascinating. You know? And this gets to the abstraction thing. You know, when I started to see the, the world of music was becoming the opposite of what I had hoped it would be, you know, it's, it seemed initially as this potential for redemption, but now it looked more and more like it was like seducing people into these fake worlds, you know? 
And, uh, and those are the terms that I see much of what I loved as a kid nowadays, you know, even some of the stuff that I still love today, I feel like, you know, I'm not sure if this really did us any favors. So it, it, this whole, like, are you familiar with the book, The Society of the Spectacle? Uh, no, I'm not. By Guy Debord? That's a really interesting book. I think, it, you know, it's, it's great to get some of the left-wing intellectuals mixed into the, into the, into the thing, too. And he's definitely kind of like a post-Marxist cultural critic type of guy who points out the, the consequences of what happens in a society where the fixation is on these spectacular representations instead of the kind of nuts and bolts of life. And uh, and I think that very much, you know, that the, the computer is just kind of turbocharged that whole thing. And, and now these kind of simulations are real. You know, the, the virtual reality, the reality TV show, you know, has now been like packaged and turned into this like realm of all potential that people could go just live in and the re that resonates with the concept of the abomination of desolation, which is a, a biblical reference to the, the visions that happen in Daniel, where he's shown this picture of what happens in the future. And it's a prophetic kind of poetry talking about the establishment of the abomination of desolation, which basically means the removal of the soul. Wow. And so the inhabiting of these abstracted realms is the process by which people are desolated. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, you know, that you mentioned. But, um, you know, you were say, uh, speaking about music. And, well, I, I still think it's really brave of you to pick up and move and stuff like that and uh, reinvent yourself. You know, I think a lot of people are afraid of taking that first step. Do you think there was a guiding um, principle that gave you some sort of level of uh, confidence in doing that. So something that dramatic or, or uh, where did you say you got the uh, courage to do something like that? Where, where do you think it came from? Well, I think part of it was desperation. Uh, part of it was uh, kind of a motivating. <laughs> yeah. Desperation is real motivator. You, you kind of, sometimes you really do have to hit a kind of bottom before you can really make a change. Part of it was was my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, but um, we ended up getting married, and she really kind of threw down uh, an ultimatum, and and that got me that got me going, and and part of it was like the recognition that I needed to find some fundamental principles, and that I was not going to be able to do that uh, where I was. That no matter what I did, I would. I would kind of end up doing the same thing just because of its environmental, you know, there's only so much you can change when you're in the same environment. So th I think those are the, those are the things that added up. And I'll tell you, it was not easy. Uh, it, it was really disorienting at times and incredibly trying. There's some very, very difficult stretches and, and dark periods where it just seemed like I had no idea what I was doing. Right now, I have a better I have a better idea of now of, you know, what that time period was like. So that was your uh, I call it the Dante's Inferno. Like we all go through. This, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. It's uh, you know, I've been there, too. I, I used to work in aviation for a couple of years and then I, I quit and had to rebuild my life. And it was hell. OK, because I went from a, something comfortable 
to something unpredictable. And, um, mm-hmm. and I had no choice. I was in a position where it was do or die. So it's, uh, yeah, that's, re- it's just fascinating, you know, cause we have, uh, obviously w- very different people, but you can always find common ground with even people with dramatically different upbringings and, you know, backgrounds. So I, I definitely relate. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. The extent to which background is sort of incidental now. Uh, in in many ways, I, I'd say we've had very similar experiences. Yeah, I'd say the main difference was uh, our perspective on uh, music because, and it, you know, it's amazing. It really is amazing. So you 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 could say that you were musically privileged, and then you, it was it wasn't as much of a natural gift and uh, type of um, you know. Or, I mean that like as a gift given to you. It wasn't, um, you know, cause there's so much convo con- conversations about privilege, right? So, you know, but you're by all means mm. were grown up in a musically privileged family. And I was, I grew up in the complete opposite. So for you it was actually more of a challenge, mm. <laughs> you know, because, uh, you had, you had to fight against that and to, to really learn who you were. And, uh, for me, I had to fight to play music because my parents are, you know, conservative and nobody plays music. I'm the first generation and they're, they're not going to want me to play music. So there's this like, Hey, you should be a doctor, right? That's what every um, Pakistani Indian family would say (laughs) to uh, their first generation children. So, and uh, here I am like thinking I'm a punk rocker and dying my hair. And they're like, what is going on? Like, what is happening? (laughs) <laughs> They're just like, you're not playing music. No, don't do it. And I was like, screw that. I'm never going to stop. And, um, and then that obviously benefited me, right? Because it was, I was defining myself in defiance and against the grain. So this idea of privilege is really funny because we just, I think we literally just shattered the idea of privilege uh, in some, some respects, right? Because there's obviously, there's nepotism, but I, I, I think sometimes being born in wealth can be like a cage, you know, it's, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to just be the golden road to where you want to be unless you know, you know, you're that's, if you want false admiration, sure. Then, you know, I think we still feel that when we look at skeevy rich children who are just like, you know, like the Kardashians or something, they just inherit wealth. And then we're supposed to celebrate them. Me and you, I, I think we had similar experiences, but found them in very different ways. You know, I, it's just really, I think it, uh, it's a good example on uh, not tokenizing and not simplifying because whenever you simplify, you also re- squeeze out the, the uniqueness of life itself. And uh, it goes back to, you know, a lot of what we said about conformity. And, um, and, you know, conformity is a very like black and white thing. And um, obviously just by talking, you know, me and you can see that there's, it's way more complex and the things that we assume are not always what they assume. Cause look at you, you grew up yep. a family of music lovers and uh, that type of privilege was actually a challenge, you know, in some ways. Well, here's the interesting thing. My father always said that you should you should always play music, but you shouldn't do it as a profession. He was like, you should be a doctor or a lawyer. That was the pressure. <laughs> Wait, are you Indian? <laughs> you know, that's really funny. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, my ancestry is Jewish, so there is a kind of uh, yeah stability, man. That that traditional approach. You said your your family's from Pakistan, right? Uh, well, my father is. My mom's Indian, so they com- committed the mortal sin. Yeah, right. But you know, prior to the English, India and Pakistan were one country, basically. So sure, it's really right. uh, good luck trying to tell them that. That's a whole other. <laughs> oh my god yeah it's incredible but hey Holy um, shit you know so they yeah that must have been something else for them too like they were so they were really uh making a rather strong statement there themselves was your mother hindu she was actually christian oh wow okay which is not as you know there it, it is there are a lot of christians in india you know india is yep. religiously uh, india has no religion it's kind of a very it's always been a place of many people and you know i think even the word hindustan doesn't never used to imply a religion and i'm gonna mess right. it up i won't even try to actually tell you the real meaning but hindustan refers to geography it's like something to do with land and water hmm. so it's uh it's always been a place of many many types of people and relatively getting along but um, yeah, you know, my mom was Christian and that was obviously a big deal because my dad is Muslim and um, my dad's family was really not thrilled. But and that was always a challenge growing up. You know, I'm here I am in between two identities. And uh, but I grew up very privileged and, in, in, you know, the way that I see it because of my father. Like uh, to, to, to be that mm-hmm. courageous and forward thinking and, you know, he's uh, and, and so, I'm not going to throw my mom under the bus. She was she's the reason why his family loved uh, our family is because of how uh, committed she was towards proving them wrong, despite of uh, despite of huh. despite the fact that that's insulting. If you have any, you know, she had to be egoless and. Uh, kind of uh operate on a divine i i call it like a divine love right when you forego your ego Mm. and you can still love someone who doesn't love you uh prem you know she she so that's the kind of woman she is you know i grew up with two amazing parents and that's Mm. like hitting the jackpot no matter the income race whatever if you have two parents that love each other and you know forget it the, that is, I think, the true privilege in life because uh, all things stem. It really stems from parents. I completely agree. Uh, that that's a perfect example because that's completely not the the situation with my parents. They they did not manage to stay together. Their relationship was very problematic. I think from the beginning, they. I honestly, I I think that they uh, were early adopters of a kind of society of the spectacle. Mm. What do you mean by that? I think they identified with cultural icons. You know, my, my sense was always that my mom was trying to be Jackie O and my dad was trying to be <laughs> Cary Grant, you know, <laughs> and it just didn't work. They were sort of pretending to be people who they weren't really, they never really got to know each other. And they both, you know, tragically ended up sort of repeating 
similarly failed relationships later in life with other people. And, and the family got broke up as a consequence and it was kind of a big mess and, and a tragedy uh, ultimately. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Yeah. But you know, my dad had had some business success. So from a lot of people's perspective, we would be a very privileged family, but it was really not a happy family. Mm. And, uh, and there were a lot of negative consequences to all that, that, yeah, I think a lot of people don't recognize that money is not a, a a positive influence at a certain point. I think it's it's good to have what you need and maybe a little bit more. But, you know, once you get into the upper middle class, people start making decisions that are really stupid because they can. Yeah. It's, um, you know, that saying when there's no dragons left to slay, you look for, you invent them, you look for them. Yeah. Yeah. Or you just do arbitrary stuff or like, instead of having to work things out with your spouse, mm -hmm. you just decide, well, screw it. I, I can afford to live without this person, you know? Right. doesn't matter. I can just. Non-confrontation becomes easier. It just becomes so accessible to walk away rather than stay and work. Yeah. And so you never really have to confront anything. I think a lot of, a lot of rich people, they just, they just buy their way from one situation into another and they never really have to come face to face with reality. And that's a true tragedy. It's like living in your own cage, you know, mm -hmm. that's to me, it's like, uh, it's really like living in a mental cage. Absolutely. And I think, uh, yeah, there's, you know, so you know, your parents, uh, they, they divorced. Uh, how old were you at that time? I was 13. Okay. So relatively young, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And do you think that, you know, that has been a source of informing, I mean, it has to be an, a, a huge source of informing your journey and. Oh yeah. It makes sense. It makes sense that, you know, you, you're still kind of, uh, you reconstructed yourself in some ways. It took forever for me to get to the point where I could even entertain the possibility of really committing myself to a relationship. I had a string of relationships that I could not commit myself to. Sure. And, uh, I could see that. And that was bad, <laughs> you know? So yeah, it's, it's, it's been a rocky road, but I've, I've definitely tried to learn and, and make better decisions as time has gone on. So that kind of gets back to that whole thing of people not being allowed now to explore and, and uh, make mistakes. You can't expect people to grow that way. It, it's, it's always going to be a mess. Life is a messy thing. Well, you know, I, I, I say I'm, I'm like a very, I, I grew up rebellious, you know, like punk culture in New York. So my my whole idea of that is screw them, you know, like it goes yeah. back to my non That's the other thing we have in common is CBGBs. Yeah. I did a f I did a bunch of gigs at CBs back in the day. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like a, a dinosaur of New York. Uh -huh. In a lot of ways, I've, I've kept I've kept a low profile, man. You know, for the if the amount of things you if you look up like my musical background, um, I don't really I like. I should say I like being a private person. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of stories there with uh, the New York music, uh, New York city music scene. And I've seen it evolve, you know, I would call it the, the generations of it, seeing the evolutions from 
the Lower East Side to Brooklyn before Brooklyn became revitalized. Yeah, I couldn't believe it when CB's closed. It just seemed like, holy shit, I didn't think that was possible. Yeah, I think that was the first time that I realized that there was a shift like, oh, OK, uh, I I was naive when I was young I, you know, about things like that. I didn't know like what gentrification or things like that. I didn't know what that meant. I just thought things would be, always yeah. be there. It was actually I've, I've been into so many places where I didn't bother looking at the name. That was the kind of naive thinking. It's like, oh, this that place on the corner, it'll be there. <laughs> I don't need to bother. Right. Now you take photos of places when you like them and you're like, wow, I, you kind of idolize a place. For me, CBGB's was like, like kind of like that. I thought it would just always be there, you know, and it was always that place that had like punks outside. It was just there. But then when that closed, I, I really started to realize like, oh, there's ca there's capital forces and, you know, kind of opened my eyes to that perspective of New York's of inevitable, like, massive you know change that was about to come it, it always surprised me uh, up until yep maybe like two years ago if finally i've seen enough of things not being holy especially in brooklyn because i feel like the level of change that happened uh, in manhattan in the 90s is pales in comparison to the level of change that's happening in brooklyn and it's it's almost like a hyper active yearly mm. instead of 10 years it's like now every year it's, you have to count who's open, you know? So do you want to tell me a little bit about what you see happening in the city now? Kind of, you know, I've gotten a lot of mixed uh, messages about what New York is like now, or it's sort of dying or if it's revitalizing and what, what do you think? What's your overall feeling of what's going on in the city? Yeah, look, New York city is, I mean, with COVID, we, we really got an, uh, an eye opener on like how, what we thought were uh, the most progressive and uh, forward beacons of like the country, you know, like how bad California and New York in some ways and in different ways, I should say, handled uh, this type of era that we were in with COVID and, you know, but New York is like, it's just really gridlocked. That's what it feels like. Like it's incompetence mm -hmm. on the political level. That's just is, it's just to me exposing really old types of political corruption, you know, because, you know, with Cuomo and Fazio, he's like a mob boss, man. He's, yeah. And Cuomo is just like a, what a, what a, he's like a mob boss from the past. But, totally. uh, it, that kind of culture is kind of still in New York politics. If you believe it or not, there is this type of like, you know, yeah, just, stealing political office and then holding ground for like your benefit or something all the all the types of like you know i guess whatever uh i don't want to call it conspiratorial but like these kind of machinations of like what you hear about with dark politicians and the you know like that that kind of stuff is mm -hmm. it's becoming more obvious and it's it's like turning on the lights and seeing the rats scatter you know i feel like that's that that's what's yeah. happening in New York is like, it's like someone turned on the lights and, you know, for the city that never sleeps. And you're just seeing a lot of these types of uh, systems that are decaying. Um, 
You know, I would say Brooklyn is doing better than. Uh, so it's a, it seems like a real opportunity. It seems like a moment of opportunity to to really clean it up. It's a huge um, opportunity. You know, the gridlock and the inertia, and it's hard to say. Like, but do do you think like someone like Andrew Yang would do a good job? Do you think he has a chance of actually winning? Yeah, whether he has a chance of doing a good job is different than whether he has a chance of winning. I think he definitely has a chance of winning. Mm-hmm. Um, it just seems like. Um, the time, the era is primed for someone like him. You know, he would have been unimaginable mm. maybe just a couple of years ago. He would have been another Bernie, right? Like someone who has all these great ideas and but just can't carry it over the finish line because of the old system having such uh, staying power. And, you know, so, but I think with COVID, it's definitely collapsed a lot of these types of norms. And I think he stands a better chance, I think, than traditionally, uh, whether he'll do a better job is a completely different story because, um, I find that I don't know a single politician who's in reality because how can to be a politician in reality, you have to have a deep connection to yourself and your soul and, to me, when you have a connection to even source, I call it source because if you don't believe in God, then you have to believe in source because it's all around you. Everything's animated and you didn't, no one had to push a button and turn it mm-hmm. on. And uh, so you have connection to source um, and you're not um, abstracted into the algorithm and the matrix, right? That's what people call it. Um, then, then you could be the person for the time. And uh, I think he, has good ideas, but I'm afraid that, you know, he is going to be like any other person who's abstracted into the desires of getting elected and the, you know, self-delusion. Yep. He's kind of already proven himself to be like that, you know, taking the job with CNN after the whole run and, and, uh, some of his, uh, willingness to play ball with the democratic establishment just doesn't smell good, you know? Yeah. It's, that's a tough one to say because, you know, I'm always, uh, I know there's people who can be very cutthroat and they're almost, it's almost like if you've had no experience dealing with power, then you can take your ball and cry and run away and say, wow, you did this one thing and I hate you and I don't trust you. And I, and I get it. Trust me, this being a New Yorker and cynicism, they go hand in hand, you know, but I try to try to not to be as much of like a hard lined extremist. It's like, um, you know, I'm just looking for ideas that aren't just superficial, you know, like uh, I I really want uh, politicians to start speaking to people like they're a little bit more intelligent because if we keep appealing to the the lowest common denominator, then we get what we deserve. Right. That's what uh, George Carlin, his brilliant skit was all about, you know, shit in shit out. (laughs) Very true. Well, in some ways that's a condemnation of, of democracy because, and there've been a number of interesting critics now who are kind of reassessing whether or not democracy is actually a functional political system. Uh, But yeah, it does seem to be the case that, if you have to somehow or another appeal to the common voter, then if the citizenry isn't highly educated and engaged, 
then by necessity, the politicians are going to uh, kind of degenerate into these hawkers of oversimplified, completely unrealistic statements <laughs> that just appeal to people's emotions. So they just become other, you know, they're just like celebrity manipulators. There's a great passage in the Society of the Spectacle, which I'll send you a link to a really great free translation online. It's better than the translations yeah. that I've seen in books uh, that talks about what the characteristics are of, uh, of celebrity. And um, they say that, that celebrities are people who represent the potential of consumer uh, like the realization of the idealized consumer and that they are the, the purveyors of the seemingly lived. So th that fundamentally celebrities live a life of greater poverty than the rest of us, even though we're all kind of also caught up in this poverty stricken, abstracted simulation type of way of living. It's a, it's a pretty dark book in a lot of ways, but it's very well written and, uh, really interesting uh, critique. Hey, you need a you need a little bit of darkness to see the light. Absolutely, you know, I think. Well, that that is a perfect statement to bring this to a close because I think we could easily talk for another hour. That was a great conversation, man. Yeah, um, we could clearly keep talking all day. That's, yeah, likewise. I mean, that's a great sign of uh, of uh, you know the meeting of minds, and um, hopefully, it was enough for your audience to not be overwhelmed i know this is heady stuff but hey it's it's sunday <laughs> right. you know kick back <laughs> kick back and enjoy the heady combo yeah well they, they'll listen on whatever day they happen to download the episode but um i think that anyone who's still downloading my material is used to a pretty heady trip so uh i think they'll be happy perfect yeah so i'll it's uh great talking to you yeah anytime you want to come back on uh feel free to drop me a line and we'll set up another time. There's, there's so much left to be said, so no doubt. I, I would love to come back. Yeah, and, and anything that uh, crosses your radar that you think is interesting that I should know about, I hope you keep that in mind and send me whatever links or anything like that that you want me to include in the show notes, and I'll, I'll post that up there too. I mean, people can go to nadeemjabronsalam.com. That's that's really the best place to learn anything about me, but uh, I'll, I'll send you links too. All right, perfect. All right, brother, you take right. care. Best of luck. You too, man. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home. <laughs>